Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia, and today I'm really excited to be joined by my guest, Dr. Hugh Selsic, because the topic, sleep, has been in the news a great deal and absolutely fascinates me. Dr. Selsic is a consultant in sleep medicine and psychiatry at University College London Hospitals and lead clinician at the Insomnia Clinic run by the Royal London Hospital for Integrated Medicine and University College London Hospitals. He's also a sleep medicine consultant at the Sleep Disorders Centre at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital, also in London. Hugh Selsic graduated with distinction in his physiology degree at Johannesburg University of the Witwatersrand. I hope I've done a good job pronouncing uh, the Afrikaans and then gained his medical degrees at the same institution. He trained at London's Maudsley Training Rotation and obtained membership of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and his Certificate of Completion of Training in General Adult Psychiatry with endorsement in Substance Misuse Psychiatry. Dr. Selsic is a council member of the Royal Society of Medicine Sleep Medicine section. He also runs the sleep group at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, is the founder and chair of sleep working group in the Faculty of Neuropsychiatry at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and is immediate past president and current council member of the sleep medicine section at the Royal Society of Medicine. I think you will have gathered that he knows what he's talking about. I always like to know something else about people and discovered that Dr. Selsic has a real interest in astronomy. In fact, for eight years while he was at university, he ran shows at the Johannesburg Planetarium. Um, He owns several telescopes, which apparently drives his wife mad. And he's also interested in archaeology and at one point wanted to be a paleoanthropologist. And of course, where he grew up was the, the center of human evolution. So um, I'm sure he had marvelous opportunities. But some of us are very, very pleased that he chose to go into the specialty that he went into because heaven knows we need help with sleep, as has become more apparent recently. So, Dr. Hugh Selsic, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you were born in South Africa, as I said, and completed your medical studies there. What drew you to come to London? Well, to be honest, when I finished medical school in my house job in South Africa, I was uh, really disillusioned with medicine. I, I really didn't enjoy being a doctor and was debating whether I wanted to continue in the profession or not. And the only thing I thought I might quite like to do was psychiatry. And so I thought I would come to the UK and locum in psychiatry for a while, which I couldn't do in South Africa, but I I could do here. And so I came over and started doing some locums in psychiatry and discovered that actually I really loved it and um, for some reason never went back. So what drew you to psychiatry? I, I always like to learn my colleagues' origin stories. For me, surgery, it was um it was just the people that I would do the firms with when I was at med school. I just found the surgeons to be full of life and vigor and funny and engaging. So what about psychiatry? What did it for you? Um, Well, a a large part of it was was exactly the same thing. Um, Medical education in South Africa, certainly when I did it, was still very traditional and they still believed in uh, education by humiliation. Um, (laughs) And, uh, 
you know, a lot of the people who who taught us were not particularly li- likable. But in the two psychiatry blocks I did, I really just found the psychiatrists to be such nice people who really took an interest in their patients, but also took an interest in the students and made us feel comfortable and at home. And I thought, well, I'd you know, like, be, like to be hanging out with these people when I'm working. But the other factor was that before I finished medical school, I knew that I wanted to go into sleep. That that was my uh, my new and enduring passion. And for me, it just seemed that psychiatry was the natural way to do that, that sleep is a is a state of consciousness and a state of the brain. And therefore, it just made sense to me that uh, psychiatry would be the, the obvious route to go. Um, it turned out that wasn't necessarily the case. It's very uh, was very difficult to get into sleep medicine um, through psychiatry. I was surprised at how few people in psychiatry were interested in sleep at the time. But uh, yeah, I just uh, it it felt the, the right way to go, and I certainly enjoyed the process of, of learning to understand patients with with mental illness um, who have experiences that uh, you know most of us can't ever imagine. Um, so I think people who become psychiatrists have to be comfortable to some extent with, um, uncertainty. We don't have blood tests that we can use to, to make diagnoses. We don't, we don't know how patients will respond to treatments or whether they are safe to go home from a ward. And that, that lack of certainty, I think I actually found quite interesting as well. You know, uh, I'm as you're talking, I'm getting a, a sort of a flashback. When I was at med school, there are a few books that I, I read that were recommended by one or another of our teachers, and one was on sleep. And I can see the book in front of me. It was a blue and white paperback by a chap named Ian Oswald. It's funny, the things you remember. And I, it was written in the 1970s. And I must admit, it was fascinating Um, And it's always, like I said in my introduction, it's always fascinated me. And of course, it's been the subject of of poetry. Of course, the famous soliloquy about death um, in Hamlet, to be or not to be, uh, to sleep perchance to dream. Um, It it is a sort of very esoteric, poetic uh, subject. Do you find it so? Or is it the science that attracted you or... Um, it's both really, and and you're quite right. It, it, it's interesting that artists and um, and mystics have taken an interest in sleep and in sleep disorders for millennia before it ever became a subject that w- was deemed worthy of of medical or scientific attention. Um, and when you look at almost any culture, there are uh, myths and ideas and um, cultural interpretations uh, around sleep, around dreaming, and around sleep disorders. Yeah, ab- absolutely fascinating. You know, there's there's an organization in the States called the Society Brain Mapping and Therapeutics, and the founder, Babak Kateb, who I've had as a guest on this podcast, made an observation to me over dinner by the ocean in Malibu. It was just one of those moments that, again, hit me as a profound observation. When I went to med- medical school, Hugh, um, the neurology ward rounds I always found to be um, <laughs> there's the there's the term when you examine someone's abdomen for free fluid, and there's the the term shifting dullness, right? <laughs> as the the dullness moves around as you percuss the abdomen. Well, neurology ward rounds for me were shifting dullness. You know, they, <laughs> they perform these incredible complex neurological 
exams on people that had a stroke and could tell us exactly which blood vessel had been occluded, but they could do damn all about it. Whereas now, you know, you can do um, uh, endovascular procedures, you can uh, clip off aneurysms, you can do all sorts of amazing things. And Babek made the point that we're reaching a time where neurology, neuroscience, neurosurgery, psychiatry, psychology are all moving closer together as we understand more about the brain. Do, do, you, do you concur with that observation? I, I do. And, um, you know, I, I consider myself to be a neuropsychiatrist, really. And I think that any division between the brain and the mind is is somewhat artificial. Um, they they clearly for me are this are the same thing, but uh, neurologists and psychiatrists are just approaching them from slightly different angles. Um, but I, I do think that we are coming to understand the mind and the brain better, um, and it it's melding these two approaches together. Yeah, um, again, I think the you know the fact that new modalities like functional magnetic resonance imaging, where you can actually show that when someone thinks something or feels something, their brain changes or PET scanning. So these modalities, are are they employed a lot in sleep medicine? So sleep medicine in some sense is undergoing a bit of a revolution in terms of technology. Um, For a long time, the polysomnogram, which is um, mostly an EEG um, and and a very kind of coarse EEG, um, has been the way that we've examined things and uh, and the way that we have defined different states of sleep. But in the last few years, there has been a real growth in using um, fMRIs and uh, more portable technologies to to measure sleep in the real world. And uh, we're really starting to see that actually there's uh, there's a lot more that we can discover about sleep when we go beyond that basic polysomnogram. Absolutely. So... Um, I want to dig a little bit deeper into some of these topics. And my next question is, I guess, which comes first, the chicken or egg? Are sleep disorders pilot or passenger in psychiatric disorders? I know this is a it's a particular interest of yours, and you authored a chapter in the book, Sleep Disorders in Psychiatric Patients. Can you speak a bit more about this? I mean, if you've got someone who's got Alzheimer's, uh, we know there's this, what's it called, sundowning and... Um, um, or, or people who've got Parkinson's disease have sleep disorders. Do the sleep disorders follow on from the um, from the neurological or psychiatric disorder, uh, or does disturbed sleep cause them, or both? So it, it's it's both. Uh, certainly, um, psychiatric and medical disorders can lead to sleep disorders. Um, you know, very simply, obesity can lead to obstructive sleep apnea and neurodegenerative disorders can lead to uh, sleep disorders like REM behavior disorder where people act out their dreams. So um, so REM sleep behavior disorder is a, is a condition where uh, normally in REM sleep we are almost completely paralyzed and that's a good thing because it stops us from acting out our dreams. If you dream that you're throwing a ball, your brain doesn't know when you're dreaming that this is not real. So your motor cortex is trying to move your arm to throw that ball, which is not a great idea if you're in bed asleep. So when we go into REM sleep, we should be almost completely paralyzed. And that stops us from acting out those dreams. 
in REM sleep behavior disorder, that paralysis doesn't happen for some reason. And so if the person dreams they're throwing the ball, their arm is actually moving and they're trying to throw that ball in the bed. Um, and it's a relatively recently described condition, but uh, what's become clear is that it's uh, very often uh, the first sign of Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, also something found in uh, multi-system atrophy. And you know, it's clearly sort of part of that neurodegenerative condition, um, but uh, can often precede the other signs of, of those conditions by, by many years. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, so I'm, I'm moved to recall the lyrics of, um, I, my brain is full of so much garbage, <laughs> the lyrics of one of the James Bond film theme songs, um, You Only Live Twice, One Life for Yourself, One for Your Dreams. How interesting that, um, that we have this adaptive mechanism to not act out what we're dreaming, because that could be pretty dodgy otherwise, couldn't yeah. it? Yeah, and people certainly do injure themselves and injure their bed partners during these episodes. Wow. So one of my GP friends told me that a patient, he's, he's had a number of patients over the years who commented that they're suddenly not remembering dreaming. And he said every single one of them subsequently developed Alzheimer's disease. Is that a known phenomenon or is that just um, coincidence? Um, I don't think it is a known phenomenon, and I've certainly not heard of that, but uh, it, uh, it's certainly an interesting observation. Well, I guess maybe one that needs uh, following up. Yeah. Um, so let's come at it from the other perspective. Um, disturbed sleep having downstream health consequences. Yeah. Um, I, I literally just got back from an overseas trip and was pretty tired and... Uh, obviously had a fairly dodgy night's sleep and the next day was a complete klutz was dropping things um making all sorts of mistakes with typing emails and so on and so forth tell us a little bit about how sleep repairs the brain and how if you don't sleep well it has downstream health consequences so uh, a, a phrase you'll hear us use a lot when we talk about sleep is we don't really know um sleep science is so new that you know we're not entirely sure what all of the functions of sleep are and, and particularly what the functions of sleep are for the for the brain but there is certainly some evidence that um, deep deep sleep what we call non-REM stage three sleep may be important in physical repair of the brain um, uh, where the um, uh, the brain kind of clears out the physical detritus that's built up during the day we certainly know it's extremely important for uh, subsequent mood regulation, for memory consolidation, and for cognitive function. Um, and so if sleep is disturbed, uh, it certainly it has an impact on physical health, but uh, more strikingly has a, a big impact on mental health. So when you ask the, the chicken and egg question, uh, if we're talking, for example, about insomnia and depression, which very often go together, around 70 to 80% of depressed patients will have insomnia. Um, it was always assumed that insomnia was a symptom of depression. And in fact, it's one of the diagnostic criteria for depression. But actually, when you look at the timeline, uh, the insomnia very often precedes the depression. Um, and when depression remits, the insomnia very often 
remains as a residual symptom. Insomnia has now been established as an independent risk factor for depression, both for uh, a first episode of depression as well as for uh, relapse uh, in, in recurrent depression. Um, and this is a really important point because very often when I see insomnia patients, they've gone to their their doctor and said, I've got insomnia. And the doctor says, oh, you must be depressed. I'll give you an antidepressant. And they feel very frustrated by this because they say, well, I don't think I'm depressed. Uh, and if I am, it's because I'm not sleeping. Um, and actually, they're, they're generally correct. Um, insomnia may, in fact, be the single biggest modifiable risk factor for depression. Wow. So when, again, please forgive my, my ignorance, but for me, psychiatry was many, many years ago. And I remember it being, when we were taught, that it was divided into two. There was neurotic, which is, you know, reactive to life circumstances. You've lost your job, you know, your relationship has fallen apart, and that will lead to you for having difficulty falling asleep. And then psychotic depression, which was, you know, a true mental illness, would lead to early morning waking. Is that a naive and outdated uh, um, descriptor? Yeah, we, we don't really kind of think about it in those terms anymore. Um, and, it, you know, it is still certainly taught that uh, early morning waking uh, is a is a sign of depression. Um, and it is true that early morning waking as a form of insomnia is more common in depressed than in non-depressed patients. But many depressed patients will have beginning of the night insomnia. They'll have difficulty falling asleep. They'll have middle of the night insomnia with frequent and extended awakenings. So, um, and there are going, there will be people who have this early morning waking who uh, are not depressed. So the connection between that sort of phenotype of, of early morning waking insomnia and depression is probably not as tight as, as we used to think it was. So what do they say that um, five years from graduation, you'll discover that 50% of what you taught was incorrect. Problem is, we don't know which 50%. And I qualified so long ago, nothing I learned was right. <laughs> so um, I think it was last year you, you co-authored a paper about the use of uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and the possibility of similar approaches being used for th things like non-rapid eye movement parasomnias. First, please cover that and then address what you covered in your paper. So uh, the non-REM parasomnias are uh, generally a, a group of disorders which are really fascinating because what tends to happen is that something wakes the person up from very, very deep sleep. But because they are so deeply asleep, they the brain doesn't wake up fully. And so what happens is that part of the brain wakes up and part of the brain remains asleep. And generally speaking, the, the, it's the back part of the brain that uh, controls movement and speech and vision that's awake. And the front part of the brain where the personality resides that uh, uh, controls sort of judgment and restraint and planning and problem solving is fast asleep. And so in a sense, what's happening is that the back part of the brain starts to enact various automatic behaviors without the higher control of the the prefrontal cortex there. It's like a, I, I sort of think of it as being 
like a, a chariot of wild horses that are kept in train uh, by the driver who is the prefrontal cortex. But when the driver's asleep, the horses just run off wherever they want to go. And so this leads to behaviors like confusional arousals, where people kind of wake up but don't seem to know where they are, sleepwalking, uh, sleep eating, sleep sex, um, and sleep terrors, uh, where people kind of sit up suddenly, scream blue murder, and then go back to sleep and uh, have no recollection of it the next day. And um, although these are not necessarily particularly uncommon conditions, particularly they're much more common in children, but they do occur in adults, but there has been very little research on ways of managing the uh, uh, these disorders. There's some evidence for some medications. There are some behavioral interventions that have been uh, shown to be useful in children. But for adults, there, there's precious little data there. Um, and so this was a project done uh, primarily by my colleagues at Guy's Hospital, where they adapted the cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia program um, to target these these disorders and you know what we know make the, these episodes worse are things like stress alcohol uh, poor sleep hygiene uh, sleep deprivation and so uh, the program really focuses very much on um, optimizing sleep habits um, managing anxiety better particularly around the time of bed teaching effective relaxation techniques and, and so on well, it's absolutely fascinating um so we know that sleep issues are, are common and um, I w- I'll come on to the COVID pandemic in a bit, which I know has made it even more common. Why are they so common? And let's set aside obstructive sleep apnea, you know, obesity induced yeah. on and so forth, snoring for the moment. Can you characterize why these conditions are common, which are the most common and why? And any other interesting observations you have, frankly? Yeah. So um, I, I guess the first thing to say is we spend a third of our lives sleeping. And so there is just a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. Um, sleep is also not as passive a state as we used to believe it is. You know, sleep is really a a collection of quite complex states. And that complexity also lends itself to, to things going wrong. Um, I, I do think that uh, one of the issues is that you know, very often the government gives us advice on good nutrition, you know, avoiding bad fats and eating lots of fiber on. Yeah. And and that, that works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, no one ever teaches you how to sleep. It, it's just assumed that you're born with this knowledge. And to some extent we are, but when suddenly you forget how to sleep or, or things go wrong, there just isn't the advice out there to, um, to help you to identify what the problem is and to correct it. So the common sleep disorders that we encounter are, as you've said, obstructive sleep apnea, but uh, insomnia is really the big one. But there are some very underdiagnosed sleep disorders, and the two in particular that I always like to highlight are the circadian rhythm disorders, where someone's internal body clock is out of sync with the outside world. Uh, and the common one is something called a delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, which is very common in adolescents. Um, and th- uh, these people really cannot fall asleep until really late at night. You know, they can only fall asleep at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And if left to their own devices, they'll sleep through till late morning, lunchtime, early afternoon. But of course, the world doesn't allow them to do that. 
Um, and they are very often misdiagnosed as having insomnia, uh, but the treatment is very different. The other disorder, which uh, is correctly diagnosed in um, less than 10% of patients, is restless leg syndrome. And, it, and indeed, it, it amazes me that there are still doctors who genuinely believe that this condition doesn't exist. Now, as someone who... Uh, uh, I, I've hurt, hurt my back a few years ago and had restless legs for about three weeks. I can tell you with absolute certainty it's a real thing. But again, it's almost always misdiagnosed as insomnia because these people have this incredible discomfort, which can be anywhere in the body, that is worse at night, worse at rest, and is only relieved by movement. And of course, if something is worse at night and at rest, it hits when you go to bed at night and you're trying to fall asleep and it makes it impossible to fall asleep. Uh, and unfortunately, patients with with uh, this condition will g often go many years or decades uh, without being diagnosed and treated. That's fascinating. I've certainly experienced sleep issues myself, you know, especially after international travel. Mm. Um, and again, well, you know what, let's deal with uh, um, the, the COVID question now. I know that sleep issues were certainly in the press uh, a great deal more. What What are the common reasons why COVID-induced sleep issues, or is it just that the newspapers have nothing else to write about? Well, uh, no, there is, uh, there is data to show that uh, overall sleep problems have become more common uh, during the pandemic. And I think there are a number of explanations for this. The first is that particularly during the, the more intensive lockdowns, uh, people were not getting out the house. They were not getting exposed to daylight. They weren't getting exercise. And that uh, could potentially weaken their circadian rhythm. It could exacerbate any underlying restless legs, which tend to get better if you exercise. Um, a lot of it obviously was down to anxiety. Um, you know, this was a, a really anxiety-provoking time for a lot of people. And one other factor that we think probably plays a role is that um, we know that we form very strong associations with places. And when, you know, one of the things that we always advise insomnia patients is not to be in the bedroom at all unless you are sleeping. Because if you come to us, if you do lots of waking activities in your bedroom, you come to associate your bedroom with wakefulness. And the act of going into your bedroom therefore wakes you up through this power of classical conditioning. Um, and during the pandemic, of course, lots of people were working from their bedrooms. It became right. a place they held their meetings and made stressful decisions. And so they were creating this adverse association with the bedroom. Right, interesting. Well, I guess that takes me on to some things that I've learned. Um, and you, you can sort of fact check for me. Uh, I learned that if one is having trouble sleeping, there were methodologies and the term sleep hygiene has been used, like reducing alcohol and caffeine intake, uh, choosing a fixed time to go to bed and to wake up, have a cool, dark room, avoid electronic stimuli for an hour beforehand. Well, are these on target? Are, are any of them bonkers? Are there any other common myths about sleep that you'd like to dispel or, or you know, any other advice? Yeah. So there, there are a couple of absolute gems in, in what you've said. But most of sleep hygiene, um, actually, we know uh, on its own does not cure insomnia. And, you know, these basic things like, you know, have a, a warm milky drink before bed and make your room cool and dark and so on. 
we know in people with chronic insomnia, this does not work. And in fact, we're so confident of this that very often uh, in trials uh, of insomnia treatment, they will use sleep hygiene as the control condition. But there are a couple of things that we do from that you mentioned that we do know work, and one of them is getting up at the same time every day. Uh, that uh, turns out to be really important, much more important than trying to go to bed at the same time every night, because uh, one of the things that drives our sleep is something called a homeostatic sleep drive, which is just a fancy word for sleepiness. From the moment you wake up in the morning, you start building up sleepiness. Uh, in a sense, you're filling up your fuel tank with sleep fuel. And if you start filling that tank at a different time every day by getting up at a different time every day, the point at which your tank reaches full and you feel sleepy will be different every night and your sleep then becomes quite chaotic. Whereas if you get up at the same time every day, you start filling the tank at the same time every day, it becomes full at the same time every night. And so your sleep time, then your bedtime becomes naturally more consistent as well. Hmm. There is also a bit of evidence for the use of kind of a warm bath or a shower um, an hour or two before bed. Um, and the reason is that when your body loses heat, it's conducive to sleep onset and to uh, having deep sleep. And so by having a warm bath or shower an hour or two before bed, you raise your body temperature so that there's more heat to lose. And so it, it doesn't have a huge effect, um, but it certainly is one of the things that we do advise uh, to patients as part of the package that we give them. And um, when I talk about the package that we give them, we're really talking about cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, which is much more uh, comprehensive than sleep hygiene. We do include sleep hygiene because, yes, if you drink a cup of coffee right before bed, none of the other techniques are going to work. Um, but um, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia is a much more comprehensive program um, that covers a whole range of different techniques, harnessing um, psychological factors, relaxation, and also harnessing the physiological sleep drives. So if you um, if you embark on a course of CBT, how long does that take before patients notice a difference? How many sessions? So we, we run our courses over five sessions, and our experience has been that, that by and large, about 20% of patients report sleeping significantly better at the end of those five sessions. However, around 70 to 80% report sleeping better when we follow them up three to six months later. So uh, the actual course only lasts five weeks, but the improvement continues long after the course is finished. Interesting. So uh, just to go back to the warm bath thing, is that mediated by melatonin? Uh, not particularly. It's more, as I say, it's more mediated by the body temperature, that our body temperature fluctuates across the 24 hours. Sure. And it, it peaks at around about 9 p.m. and bottoms out at around about 4, 5 a.m. Um, and that period where our body temperature is dropping is very conducive to sleep onset and conducive to deep sleep. And when our body temperature is at, at its lowest, that uh, is conducive to REM sleep. So uh, our sleep, to some extent, responds to our body temperature. And that's why ambient temperature can be important as well. Um, that very often in institutional settings, we see, um, you know, for example, in care homes, that they might keep uh, the temperature at a constant balmy 24 degrees. Blimey. Uh, and, you know, that's not going to be, that might be very comfortable in the day, but it's not going to be conducive to good sleep at night because 
the body expects the ambient temperature around it to drop so that the body temperature can drop as well. That's fascinating. Uh, the, one of the reasons I asked about melatonin is that it's marketed as an over-the-counter sleep aid, especially mm. for people who travel. You know, I, I have to go to the United States shortly and all the way to the West Coast and sometimes would go to New Zealand, 12-hour time difference. Does melatonin work? It does. Um, as with all psychoactive substances, the dose and the timing is, is very important. Um, but certainly there is very good evidence that, um, you know, taking a small dose of melatonin, uh, three to six milligrams at bedtime at your destination, does accelerate your uh, adaptation to the new time zone and help to improve your sleep a little bit as well, because it has a mild hypnotic effect. Okay, well, I'm I'm going to put a tick in that particular box. Someone also told me um, that a cup of hot banana tea, basically taking, eating a banana at some point in the day and then using the the the, the peel, boiling it in water, and uh, that that was a good idea before bed. I guess one element would be having hot fluid um, to to speak to your premise of raising the body temperature so it can drop. But yeah, does yeah. the banana have any effect? I have read a few things about it, but is there any scientific evidence to, to justify it or is it an old wives' tale? Um, to be honest, the evidence around the impact of different foods on sleep is um, has is either been negative, the, the studies have not found any particular effects, or uh, the evidence is simply lacking. And from a purely pragmatic perspective, my approach to this is um, that if, you know, uh, drinking water uh, with soaked banana skins or as uh, a particular TV medic advocates eating two kiwi fruit before bed, if that stuff worked, I, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well said. So the insomnia clinic which you, you head up is the largest special institution of its kind in, in Britain. So someone's referred to you. Can you give us like a 30,000 foot view of the patient journey? And I'm sure you, I know that you're a very, very busy chap, um, but should GPs be referring more people rather than just writing a script for, you know, one of the sleeping medications? So uh, the journey of a patient coming to our clinic generally is they will have an initial uh, half hour assessment with one of our doctors uh, who will take a history of their their sleep, um, I understand what it is that that's troubling them, um, will then screen for any other sleep disorders, partly because other sleep disorders, as I said, can masquerade as insomnia or uh, exacerbate the insomnia, partly because we know we might be the only doctor ever to take a sleep history from that patient in their lifetime. And so wow. we don't want to miss something. Um, we'll check if there are any medical or psychiatric conditions contributing to it, look at what medications they're on, uh, what substances they use, and so on. And then uh, we'll uh, work out a treatment plan. And very often that treatment plan, if the patient has straightforward insomnia, will be referral into our group CBT for insomnia program, where we have uh, some amazing therapists who uh, take these patients through the five sessions, uh, guide them through. Um, they have a follow-up with the therapist a few months later, and if things are going well, uh, they are discharged. And if things are not going as well as they would like, we keep working with them to see why things haven't worked, what things we need to tweak to, 
to get things working. Uh, and sometimes that may involve medication. Uh, sometimes medication is the right thing for, for some patients, uh, or it may involve further psychological or behavioral interventions. In terms of where the GP should be, prescri uh, should be prescribing medications or, or referring uh, to sleep clinics, um, you know, ideally, uh, we would say we'd like more patients to be referred to sleep clinics because we know that even to this day, most doctors have had practically zero training on sleep medicine. And so uh, they do need to, when patients have sleep disorders, they often do need to be seen in a specialist center. I say that with a little bit of trepidation because, of course, uh, <laughs> your you phones are going to be ringing off the hook. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know what? What we really encourage, what we really do try and encourage, is to uh, uh, get uh, more GPs interested in sleep and learning about sleep, so that they feel more confident to manage these patients and to learn the psychological and behavioural techniques that we use, uh, which can very easily be delivered by. GPs or by nurses uh, within a GP practice. Mm. Uh, and one of the great pities is that actually CBT for insomnia is not rocket science. It's easy to learn and it's easy to teach. Um, and, and the problem is that it's just, there's almost nowhere in the UK where it's available. Um, and so we really are trying to encourage more GP surgeries and, and psychiatric units to, to learn these techniques so that they can apply them with their patients um, and then only refer those who are really battling uh, onto yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it it's um, I get the point you make about people not being taught about sleep medicine. I reflect back on my medical school time, and you know I've been involved in education for many years at institutions both in the United States and the UK. I don't think that much has changed, frankly. Um, I know that when I was working at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, when the first sleep clinic opened, I think the first in the United States, and the, the, the raised eyebrows um, and the attitude stores, it were quite astonishing. So, you know, you're, I think you're at the forefront. And given that you are at the forefront, is there anything else? Is there anything new and exciting on the horizon in terms of drugs or devices or technologies um, for diagnosis or treatment for people dealing with sleep disorders? Well, I think one of the big frustrations we have in the UK is that actually there is a much wider range of medications available than, than we have available to us. Um, as I said, there are times when medication is the appropriate treatment for patients. And if you're in the States, you have a, a wide range of medications to choose from so that you can really tailor the treatment for each patient. And we don't have that in the UK. Um, but the, we are hoping that gradually over time our formulary will increase. But I think where a lot of the excitement is at the moment is uh, over the use of wearable technologies and portable technologies, which are allowing us to diagnose a lot more people uh, more cheaply. Um, uh, technologies such as the, uh, the WatchPad device is now being really widely used uh, for home diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea right. um, and what this means is that the barrier to getting diagnosed and being treated is much lower um, and as these technologies advance we're hoping uh, that we can use them not only for diagnosis but uh, find some therapeutic applications for them as well right and of course there's the um the implantable neuromodulation devices that have been used for for obstructive sleep apnea that that uh 
um, gaining some traction. So yes, absolutely, and that's uh, that's now some something that is coming online in the UK. Again, it has been available in some other countries for a while, um, but uh, has only recently become available in the UK, and and that's really good because again, for obstructive sleep apnea, for a long time. CPAP has really been the only option, and a lot of patients don't get on with it. Um, so uh, anything that in- increases patient patient choice is going to be a good thing. Yeah, well, I, I sense a follow-up podcast in the offing. Um, Hugh, I like to ask every guest on this podcast some version of this question. If you had three wishes to improve health globally, locally, whatever, what, what would those three wishes be? Yeah. Um, first up, I I would really like to see mental health being given uh, more funding, uh, more support, and uh, m- more prominence within medicine. Um, we often hear this mantra that you know there's no health without mental health or a parity of esteem for mental health. But I'd really like to see that becoming a reality. Um, the second thing I, I would really like to see is I would love to see a textbook written by patients. Um, huh. which rather than describing the diagnostic criteria for a particular condition, describes what it feels like to have that condition so that we as doctors can really understand how our patients feel. And finally, and I, this will come as no surprise, I'd really like to see sleep being taken much more seriously by, um, by the public, uh, by um, the medical profession, uh, and by the policymakers. Um, and also, I think, by employers. Um, anyone who's had a sleep disorder will tell you that it affects every aspect of your life. Um, and so it's something that needs to be taken much more seriously. Well, um, here, here, I am moved to remember one of my teachers at med school who, whenever he did a, a Friday lecture, whatever the topic, he would bring in a patient with that condition. Um, and I, I have a very, very strong memory of that because it did give you another perspective. There's the disease itself. And then there's the dis-ease that people living with that condition, uh, have to address. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Hugh Selsick, who has opened my eyes to this fascinating topic. Dr. Selsick, it's been a delight. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please check out our archive, subscribe to ensure you don't miss a new episode and tell your friends. And please join me next week on the EMG Health Podcast. Until then, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.